Well, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount these last couple of weeks, and I've said that there are topics that are very sensitive that Jesus touches on. The rubber really hits the road, and, and his teaching hits close to home, and this is certainly one of those teachings today as Jesus talks about lust and love. It's a sensitive topic that lust and love and, and, and divorce and, and marriage. Um, it's, a, it's a sensitive topic that, that touches all of us. And one of the um, points that I've made over and over as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount is that part of the goal of the Sermon on the Mount is to lead us to the cross, to lead us to a place of repentance and forgiveness, and to remind us that the only one who perfectly obeyed the law of God is Jesus Christ. And as we read in our epistle reading, that it was by his obedience, and it is by his obedience, that we are made righteous in the eyes of God. Um, and so we need to, to remind ourselves of this because the standards of the law of Christ are so high here that who among us can say that we have met these standards? It's a sensitive topic, too, because, um, as I said, many of us have been affected by failure in this area, sin in this area. Our sin, the sin of others against us, broader culture of, of sin and rebellion against God has caused a lot of pain and a lot of fallout. And in our own family, my own family, my parents were divorced and, and uh, spent many times talking to my parents about their own pain and then seeing the effects of this on our family as well. So none of us come to this topic, I think, unscathed. This topic of love and divorce it's important to remember the intent of the law of God is love. Jesus summarized the law, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so when it comes to our relationships with other people, the, the, the goal is love. Love your neighbor as yourself. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in Romans 14 as he talks about those commandments that deal with our relationships with others. And he says, love is the fulfillment of the law, which can be summed up in these words, love your neighbor as yourself, because love does not harm your neighbor. That's what Paul says. There's something about lust that is harmful to your neighbor. There's something about lust that's unloving. There's something about unlawful divorce that is unloving. Love here is the goal. So the law of God is not, as some people would think, restrictive in inhibiting our humanity because it says, don't do this. It actually dignifies our humanity and allows us to flourish as human beings as we pursue a better way, a way that is in accord with our Creator. And that way ultimately is the way of love. And so with that in mind, let's get into these <coughs> topics and into this teaching that Jesus has for us today. 
If you want to take a look at your bulletin, we'll just be following along Jesus' words. And so he says in verse 27, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Now that's, of course, a quote from the Ten Commandments, the Seventh Commandment. We recited these today. But I say to you, now he's not contradicting what the Ten Commandments teach. He's intensifying. I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her, here's the key phrase, in his heart. So again, as we've said all along, Jesus is in a context where some people believe that righteousness means performing certain outward acts or not engaging in certain behaviors. And they place the premium on these outward acts for not engaging in certain behaviors. And to an extent, that was okay. But Jesus gets at the heart. Jesus teaches us that God sees the heart and holds us responsible for what is going on in our heart. And the heart is, in the Bible, the center of the self. It involves our thoughts, our thinking. We hear heart today, we think of emotions and feelings, but the biblical understanding of heart is that's the very center of who you are, and that does involve your thinking, and that involves your choices, and that does involve your feelings, your will, the center of the self. God sees the heart, and Jesus is concerned with what's going on inside a man's heart. Now, he is addressing this to men but the principle applies to women as well, although it's notable that he's addressing it to men in this context in first century Judaism. I read a little bit of the background on this. There was a strand in the rabbinical tradition that basically blamed women for the lust of men. And Jesus is saying, no, guys, you need to think about what's going on in your heart. Some people say, and I've had people ask me this question, well, I can't help noticing an attractive person when they walk into the room. Is that a sin? Well, God has wired us to notice uh, the opposite sex, and it's natural to be attracted to the opposite sex. But here it's more than just noticing or taking a look. It's, as the text says here, the ESV translates it this way, Looking at somebody with lustful intent. Um, just back up and say, although Jesus is addressing men here, the principle applies to women as well. God holds women and men responsible for their sexual behavior. But it's that look with lustful intent, the, the look with the idea of lust in mind, or the lingering look that begins to inflame desire. So it's not just noticing an attractive person, but it's that lingering look or that second look where desire is inflamed and stirred up. And there's a well-known passage by Martin Luther, the great reformer, when he was preaching on the Sermon on the Mountain. He had a way with words, and he, um, he said this regarding the distinction between 
looking and lustful looking. He said, it's not possible to prevent the devil from shooting lust and evil thoughts into our hearts, but don't let them stick and grow there. Tear them out and throw them away. And then he quoted an ancient writer who said this, I cannot prevent a bird from flying over my head, but I can easily prevent it from making a nest in my hair. <laughs> Noticing the attractive person is the bird flying over your head. Lusting after that person is letting the bird build a nest. Lust is not loving because lusting after a person is objectifying that person, turning them into an object. But they're made in the image of God. If you're married, lusting is certainly sinful because you're directing your desire away from the spouse that God has given you to another person. So how do we guard against lust? Well, look at what Jesus says in verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Well, what is Jesus teaching here? Did Jesus' disciples go around with eye patches and bandages on their amputated limbs? He's using, of course, exaggerated language. He's using hyperbole. He's saying you have to take radical action to cut off in your life those things that are stirring up lust. You have to take decisive, radical measures against it. You have to do battle. You have to fight against it. You have to guard against it. This is not something that you want to play around with. You don't want to play around with fire. And this is fire. And there's a connection here, a, a connection between this teaching on lust and divorce, lust and adultery, because what precedes adultery and often leads to divorce is this very issue of lust and not cutting it off. Because nobody gets married, don't think. Many people get married thinking, I'm going to commit adultery. What happens is relationships develop. Habits begin to develop. Choices are made that lead you further and further away from your spouse. And maybe it starts with an emotional connection with another person at work. Or today we hear stories, you probably heard them, somebody makes a connection with an old friend online, and then communication begins to develop, and then this emotional intimacy starts to develop, and before you know it, they find themselves in a position they could have never imagined themselves in. Jesus is saying, cut it off from the beginning. These things that can lead you down this path. And if you're married especially, we have to guard against such things, those connections with people who are not our spouses, especially emotional intimacy. And friendship, we have to be careful. But then, of course, there's other issues in our culture today for those who are married and those who are single. There's the issue of pornography that's rampant inside and outside the church. And Jesus would say, cut it off. 
take measures against it. And I would say to anyone here what I say in my study when people come to talk to me about such things. The first step is confession, to get it out in the light. Then God can begin the healing process. Confess your sins one to another, James says, and you'll be healed. Confess your sin. Admit this struggle with somebody that you trust, somebody who has your best intentions in mind, somebody who can keep confidence. Sometimes it's necessary to get some counseling so that you can understand the dynamics behind what's happening. Pornography is often a, a symptom of a deeper issue, spiritual and psychological, that needs to be dealt with. Sometimes that counseling can take place one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes within a group of people who have shared similar struggles. And, and sometimes the radical action would be, I, I got to get some, the, I got to get this accountability, I got to con confess, and, and I've got to get some sort of software on my computer that will, will help me to fight against this and help me to be accountable to others. But it, it's not God's will for a believer in Christ to be in, in bondage to lust. And, uh, and Jesus, Jesus doesn't just say, don't look upon a person with lust. He gives us here some steps we can take. He gives us a principle. See, God's law says don't do this, but then God's word gives us some measures, some steps to take. And Jesus is saying take radical action in your life so that lust is not inflamed in your heart. It could be reading books that lead you into fantasy land. And you're reading a book about, you know, this, this hunk of a, of a guy who who can build a log cabin with his bare hands and speaks three languages, has a Ph.D. from Harvard. And then you look over at your spouse and say, huh. And then you go off into fantasy land about that guy that you've read about. But then the fantasy can get darker and the distance can grow. And Jesus is saying, get rid of those things in your life. Lust is not loving. And then Jesus talks about divorce. So from one sensitive topic to another difficult and sensitive issue that touches so many people today. Verse 31, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And there Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 24, part of the Mosaic law. And Moses allowed for, he didn't encourage divorce, but he allowed for divorce in certain cases. And a key phrase in the Mosaic law was that this certificate of divorce could be issued to the woman who was considered unclean or indecent. There had to be some uncleanliness or indecency in her. And, um, and what was happening in that culture, as far as I understand, and based on some of the study I've done, is that in the ancient Near East, a man could practically divorce his wife for any cause and just say, you're on your own. And so there were not protections. There were not some stops in place 
that process of divorcing your wife. And so that's what the Mosaic Law is doing. And some people say, first of all, there had to be some grounds, some indecency, but also uh, the very fact that a certificate of divorce had to be written out meant that, that perhaps the man had to go to a scribe and have this written out so that there was some processes in place that added a little more protection, not as much as we would perhaps like to have, but uh, that was the culture, a patriarchal culture in first century ancient Near East. That was the context Moses was in. But by the time you get to Jesus, the rabbis are debating that key phrase, indecency. What does it mean for the wife to be indecent? You can give a certificate of divorce if you found some indecency in her. And so they began to debate this. And the conservative party said, well, it, it's about adultery. It's about sexual unfaithfulness. You cannot divorce your wife unless she's been sexually unfaithful in some way. The more liberal party said, no, no, it doesn't specify. So indecency could be anything, practically, theoretically. And uh, there's a Jewish text called the Mishnah that quotes these various schools, these various rabbis. And one rabbi said, if your wife burns the dinner, you could find her indecent. Another said, if you saw somebody else who was more fair than your wife and you fancied her, well, then you look at your wife and now she's indecent in your eyes. So this is the context that Jesus is operating in, and he takes a conservative position and says, no, you can't just turn your wife out of your home for any reason. Again, it was protecting and upholding the dignity of women. Women were very vulnerable in the ancient world. They didn't have their career to go to. And so what happens to a woman who's turned out of her house for no good reason? She's got to go back to her family, or she just depends upon the kindness of strangers, maybe a beggar. So Jesus is offering here, siding with the conservative party, which provides, offers more protection for the woman. Now, the last part of verse 32 is a difficult uh, section of Scripture. Let's read the whole of 32 and think about what he says at this last part of it. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, which includes adultery. The word there is porneia, which includes sexual unfaithfulness, including adultery. It's, a, it's an encompassing term makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. That's a difficult phrase, and there's different interpretations of this. So one interpretation is that when Jesus says, makes her commit adultery, what he means is that people in that culture will assume that she is an adulterer, and that's why you got rid of her. So she becomes an adulteress in other people's eyes. That's one way to interpret it. Another interpretation is that if it's not been a lawful divorce, that she commits adultery because the first marriage isn't properly dissolved. Now, stop. I've had people, not in this congregation, but in another context, I had a young man who asked me, he had been divorced, and he did not consider that divorce to be lawful, biblical, 
And by the way, and I'd be happy to talk with you about the, the larger issue, not just this passage, but other places that talk about divorce in the Bible, and I think there are various reasons and other exceptions that we could talk about, but we're just focusing on this today. But this young man said, I don't think my first divorce was lawful, but I'm in a relationship with a woman now, and I'm not going to marry her. Because to do that would be to make her an adulterer. And so, <laughs> we're just going to live together. <laughs> so there's kind of this perverse logic here, but that was the logic that he was drawing from this passage. Now, the ESV Study Bible has a good section at the end of it, if you own an ESV Study Bible, that talks about theology and ethics and such. And here's what this very conservative study Bible says on this issue of divorce and remarriage. What if someone has divorce for reasons other than what the Bible gives and marries somebody else? Second marriages may start on the wrong foot. I'm paraphrasing here. But it's still a marriage. It's still a marriage. And it's not living in continual adultery because the man and woman are married to each other now and no one else. And so the goal of a, of, a, of, a, of a second marriage is to make the current marriage good and to stay together and to make it a witness to the world of restoration and healing and God's forgiving grace and mercy. So yes, sometimes there is and oftentimes there needs to be some forgiveness and some working through. But that second marriage, the commitment that spouses are to make to one another is a, is a witness to a watching world as well. So the, the ideal, however, of course, is the lifelong marriage. It's part of the traditional marriage vows, right? To death do us part. But because we live in a a fallen and broken and sinful world. We don't always live up to that ideal. And yet we can't sweep the ideal under the rug. We can't diminish it because, once again, it's about love. It's about what is best. Um, we don't want to diminish it because the outcomes in general are better <laughs> when husbands and wives are able to stay together, and especially when children enter into the picture. It's generally better. And the uh, social science bears this out. That the outcomes are better when mom and dad stay together and children are raised with their biological mothers and fathers. Let me read you something that um, a rabbi said, talking about the goodness of a biblical vision of marriage. And he said this, he was the leading rabbi in the UK, and he said this before some decision makers in the UK, and he said it in other places. He gives talks on this, but here's what he said. What made the biblical vision of family remarkable, a work of high religious art, is what it brings together. Sexual drive, physical desire, friendship, companionship, emotional kinship and love, and the begetting of children and their protection and care their early education and induction into an identity and a history. Seldom has any institution woven together so many different drives and desires, roles and responsibilities 
It made sense of the world, and it gave a human face to love. And then he went on and said this. Today, for various reasons, these things are being torn apart. Sex has been divorced from love, and love from commitment, and marriage from children, and children from their biological parents. There has been this decline in this vision, this biblical vision of marriage. And the result, he says, has been a sharp increase among young people of things like eating disorders, drug abuse, suicide, suicide attempts, clinical depression, anxiety. What is happening to our children is a direct result of, or there at least is a strong correlation to, these issues that we're talking about today. God can redeem these situations, of course. But the ideal is there for a reason, because it's better. It's better for culture. It's better for families. It's better for children. And so, brothers and sisters, if we're married as Christians, what a witness to the world as we build our marriages, as we build our families, as we demonstrate to a watching world, to our colleagues and our neighbors and our friends, the dignity of family and married life and caring for children. As those things are separated, as they, for various reasons, are being torn apart, we can be a witness to a watching world that testifies to the goodness of these things. And in the meantime, we we can all pray for our culture, and especially the younger generation being influenced by these things that are tearing marriage and family apart, that they would rediscover the goodness of this. All disciples of Christ are called to aim. Aim for purity of thought and purity in our bodies. And I want to share just final thought here from Diedrich Bonhoeffer about the motivation to pursue this. He says, the body of Jesus was crucified. As we contemplate his body that was given for us in love, and as we share in the life of the body of Christ in the church, and as we partake of the spiritual food of the body and blood of Jesus, as we contemplate what he has done for us, we receive strength to do what Jesus calls us to do and honor him with our bodies, and in this area of our life. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word is like a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. And your word also is challenging. And it's oftentimes like a mirror and we see ourselves in it and we see sometimes the ways we fall short. Don't do that to heap guilt upon us, but you do call us to repentance and um, you call us back to the cross. And so I pray for, for those who may, uh, may sense that call to repentance and dealing with some guilt and shame, that they would come to you with that today. And they would find a forgiving and gracious God that would restore them. And I pray for all of us that 
as we hear this call and this challenge, you, by your Holy Spirit, would enable us to walk in this way as we think about what you have done for us, Jesus, on the cross, the body that you gave for us. And we thank you and praise you. In your name, amen. Amen.